I mean, we were joking about manifesting, but like the power of the conviction in yourself has to be stronger than the, you know, and it, it's not ego that it, it should not be confused with that. It should just be uh, an unwavering belief that that you can do it. Hi, and welcome to the Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Hi, and welcome back to the Sliced Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Ahrens. Today's guest is Cindy Jordan, co-founder and CEO of PIX Health, a leading solution to loneliness and social isolation through technology and human connection. Before Cindy founded PIX, she worked as a police officer in the D.C. area where she fully understood the definition of a bad day. Today, she and her team are working to help people feel better while lowering costs for employers and health care providers. Hey, Cindy, how's it going? That's good, Emily. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is going to be great. You and I have spoken previously for your article on Startup Blog Post, so I have had the pleasure of hearing your story, and I am so excited for our listeners to hear that same story. It is incredibly impactful, and I love what you guys are doing, so I kind of just want to jump in if you're feeling good. I'm feeling great. Okay. Well, let's jump in. So let's right. let's start in the beginning. Kind okay. of tell me, I, we prefaced this in your intro so people will know that you were a police officer. So tell me kind of where you went to school, what you went to school for, and then how you got to the D.C. area. Yeah. So I lived, basically grew up in the D.C. area, like got there in middle school. So I consider us like grew up there. Mm-hmm. Um and I went to George Mason University and I played softball there. And, um, you know, I, I found as I was getting closer and I studied government and politics, like political science. So I found that as I was getting closer to graduation, that getting into government and or politics just didn't feel, you know, like the right thing. And I'll say this because it circles back to what I'm doing now. I I just had this need to, or want to want to help people. And so one day I told you I played softball that they were recruiting in the athletic arena. You know, there's a place that we all practiced and all our locker rooms were, et cetera. And police, the, the military and some police departments were recruiting there. And they were specifically recruiting women who had four year degrees and could pass the physical, right? So they're going after athletes and, um, you know, I was like, man, this is this is a great job. Like you, 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 you get to help people. And so I signed up literally before I graduated. I graduated, I think it was May 13th, 1993. And I had to go straight for my graduation. I couldn't even take a picture and go to my psychological test. Oh wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So I mean, I literally was 21 years old, uh, you know, riding in a police car, carrying a gun and arresting people. Were you was that daunting or scary to you at all? I think maybe I was naive enough not to be so scared. Don't get me wrong. There were many. I, I ended up working mostly permanent midnight. So I worked eight at night till six in the morning. Almost. I did it for five years. So almost the entire time. And 
that there there's plenty to be scared of. It's just, it's not like I woke up every day and thought, oh, my job is scary. You, you know, you don't, you don't think that way. Right, you're doing, you're living it. <laughs> yeah. But now that I'm here and I have kids, I'm like, that's a scary job. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think really differently about it now. And then plus, I think just policing in general has become, you know, on both sides of the fence, it's, it's way over scrutinized and it needs to be scrutinized. Do you see what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't love the vibe of being a cop. I hated paramilitary organization. I didn't like that. The people that were in charge weren't in charge because of merit. They were in charge just because of time on or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you weren't incented in that profession to, to sort of think outside the box. You're incented in that profession to, you know, to, to toe the line and for good reason, right? If everybody was just a free spirit as a police officer, we'd be in big trouble. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I, as it started drawing close to five years, I just, just like, you know, is this really what I want to do? And I, the answer was pretty profoundly no, but the problem was I had been riding in a police car for five years. And when I went to try to apply for a job, I, I hadn't used a computer. Oh, no. So I didn't even know how to turn a computer off from the start down here in the bottom. What is the problem to have? (laughs) It was like so crazy. So I'm trying to apply for jobs and figure out like how to actually maybe have an office setting kind of a job. And so I wanted I went to work for the National Organization for Women, which which was more using my degree. Right. And they there was a job. Uh, posted in the Washington Post, and this is when jobs used to be in the paper, and they cost a lot of money, and it had been there week after week, probably for like six or seven weeks, and I applied, and then I applied again, so, you know, the old-fashioned way, I figured out who was hiring, and I called her, and her name was Loretta, I'll never forget her, and I said, hey, you keep advertising for this job, and yet you won't even give me an interview, and she goes, what's your name, and I tell her my name, she goes, oh, you're the cop, so for, for people who are listening to this, like, you know, this is a feminist organization, not necessarily very friendly <laughs> with law enforcement. You know, they do a lot of protesting and it was it was completely. And so she goes, all right, listen, I'll give you. I said, if you can give me 15 minutes and if if you don't want to give me another 15, I'll leave and I'll never bother you again. And so I went in and um, I left there with that job. And so I had to figure out a lot of stuff that had happened in the world in the last five years that I, I hadn't done email, you know, like all, all those things. But that was one of the most fun and informative things because I realized that I wanted to be in a position to influence, right? Mm-hmm. Not just react. And I think that that's what policing was versus really what I wanted to do. That is so cool. I love that you got the job. Congrats. Thank you. Although I did ask my mom, I'm like, hey, mom, what what should I wear for this interview? And so, again, if you think National Organization for Women, they wore jeans and like, um, you know, like uh, Birkenstocks and things. You know, I showed up in a skirt suit (laughs) with a jacket that was matching and pantyhose completely dressed 100,000 percent wrong for that job. But But, they knew you were trying. They 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 could see you were trying. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that really changed everything for me, the trajectory of mm -hmm. where my life was going to go. And so how long did you stay there? Gosh, I think I was there 
for four years and then just started kind of working into more um, traditional political fundraising. So went to work for another C4 organization, the Human Rights Campaign, got into their fundraising department, loved that. And then my next job was I worked for um, an organization that raised money for the 2000 presidential race. And so that was just crazy and a whirlwind and really fun. And if you remember, that was Gore and Bush and the hanging Chad issues. When it was all said and done, I was like, you know, my stint in politics was fun, but I, I want to. And I had been to Tucson and done a whole bunch of fundraisers. And so that's 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 what I loaded up my truck with my two chihuahuas. I listened to the thorn birds on tape and I drove across country. I didn't even have a job out here, but. Okay, um, that was my next question was how did you get from the DC area to Tucson? I just wanted, you know, I had just turned 30 that year and I was like, you know, I just want a different scenery, Change a different pace. vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so got out here and quickly ended up working at a at a marketing agency and I did that for 7 years and that that was great and and really fun but at some point i was like you know i'm doing i'm building businesses for all these people i my my job was as a lead strategist so literally people would show up at our door and say this isn't an exaggeration i want to start a sports drink company we'd be like okay so we do the market research we do this we come up with the messaging and the positioning and the the budgets and everything and finally in the crash of 2008 i um i said you know i'm going to do this for myself mm-hmm. and i had this idea uh, cause I represented a large healthcare client around referrals. It is so boring. Your, your listeners <laughs> fall asleep, but I mean, it did solve a problem and it was, and it was a great in, in the middle of a crash and a recession, mm-hmm. it was the best time to start a business. And so we sold that one fairly quickly in like, you know, maybe by 2013. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so then I just really didn't think I would do it again. I wasn't really particularly in healthcare, you know, so overregulated. It feels kind of hard. It's hard to sell anything here, you know, that. But then in 2017, my stepdaughter, who suffers from bipolar, had a horrible year. Um, And I actually wasn't working this year. And so I was paying a lot of attention to things I wasn't paying attention to before. Mm -hmm. But in, in the span of this year, she... She ended up in the ED quite a bit and um, went off her meds and, you know, addiction got riddled in there and she ended up in an inpatient facility. And when we got through it as a family and I went to her and I'm like, what, what do we miss? Like, what's the early detection warning sign? What, what are we not seeing? And she said, you know, it starts with me feeling profoundly lonely. Like I'm the only person in the world who understands what I'm going through. No one can help me. And so when I started doing research, there's a lot written about loneliness. There's a lot of science, but in the U S in our healthcare system, we were doing nothing. In fact, at the time, if you Googled it, it would tell you to buy a puppy or take yourself out to a nice dinner. If you're feeling lonely, ignoring the fact that loneliness is actually a chronic condition that has a physical response in the body. Mm -hmm. And so I was very inspired and that's how PICS got started. Yeah. And I, I do remember that story and it, every time it's just so touching and how long would you say after that event happened with your stepdaughter, did you start to formulate picks? Was it like an overnight thing or did you start Googling and was it over the course of a year? What was the time span before you thought, okay, we're going to do something about this? 
I mean, I instantly knew I wanted to mm-hmm. get get back in the game, if you will. Um, but picks, of course, I, I knew I wanted to address this problem. I knew we needed to leverage technology to do so, but I didn't really have sort of a theory of the case. So I pulled together, you know, my partner and a couple other people and just said, hey, let's start to formulate. So we did, we kind of sketched out what we thought pick should look like. And if I showed you now what it was then and what it is now, um, and we pooled our money and built a minimal viable product. And this is one of the things I would recommend to any entrepreneur is build something and just test it, get it in the market. Because mm-hmm. we built something, we put it in the market. I'll, I'll not forget this. It was my birthday weekend. And we asked like 350 people to try the product. And we got it out on a Friday. And by Sunday, I was like, this thing sucks. I mean, it was <laughs> so boring. Happy birthday and, to you. <laughs> right. Happy birthday. You just spent $400,000 on a piece of garbage. And so it was so, no one was going to use it. And it was clear to me in 48 hours. And so that, you know, we struggled for a bit thinking, okay, well, how, it's not that we don't know that we can't solve this problem, but you can't solve the problem if you can't get people to engage, right? Um, And we didn't even at this point think we would sell the health insurance plans. We weren't sure. We didn't know if we were going to have a provider strategy or what. And so, you know, the long story to this is that in the middle of the night, I woke up one night and I was like, oh, we need a personality. If we're going to solve loneliness, we need to treat it just like we would if two humans were together. And then that's when Pixar was born. And then everything really started to come together. The product came together. It was engaging. And then we had so much engagement that we knew we needed to hire human beings. So we, we have now our whole you know, I call it the peanut butter and chocolate solution, but we've got a scalable, empathetic, really funny chatbot that addresses loneliness. But when people are chronically lonely, we have a whole call center of, of um, humans that we call our Andes. It stands for authentic, nurturing, dependable, your friend, the Andes engage. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's, it's a tech enabled services business is really what it is. And now we're just you know, we touch thousands of people all the time. I mean, all day. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's funny how these things come together. You, it's never what you see in the beginning, but every single step of the way, it just starts to like formulate. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, is there a particular, I'm sure you've done a ton of market research. This is just out of my own curiosity. And now that you've been doing it for a while, out of all of your, would you say customers or clients, is there a particular demographic that you see utilizing the program the most? Well, Emily, every single person asked that question. And, you know, the age group of 45 to 55 is our highest users, but statistically insignificant. It, so we have people on the platform from 18 to 104 and, and we're about to actually launch 13, uh, 14 to 18. Um, because if you, there was an AARP study that came out last year that says the 14 to 24 year old age group is the loneliness in the, the country more than seniors and we you know when you think about loneliness you think of it as a senior problem because they're alone but loneliness isn't about being alone right Mm -hmm. it is literally this perception that you that you are alone in your plight that no one can help you Mm -hmm. um and so uh there is no difference between men and women there's little difference in age we serve a lot of vulnerable populations, so we see a lot of high engagement in people who make less than $25,000 a year, but that's also because we haven't gone direct to consumer, so I don't know if it would be different right. for people 
make six figures, but right. you know, in, in what we do, there's, there's very little, I call loneliness, the indiscriminate chronic condition. It doesn't care. No. If you're and I think lonely. everybody's been lonely at one point or another, right? I'd be, you'd be lying if you said you hadn't been lonely. It's yeah. so true. And, and what happens is like, even me, like I, you know, there's times I feel lonely, but you know, you and I would probably be intermittently lonely. Like we feel it sometimes and then we come out of it. Chronic loneliness, you know, your body literally goes into fight or flight. You don't think anyone can help you. You don't reach out for services. You don't go to therapy. You're not engaged in your, in your own health. It is, it is a, it is a real thing and it needs science to move you through Mm -hmm. that. Get on the other side and start doing some self-management. Right. I am curious on about your take on COVID-19 and if you guys have seen anything interesting as far as the studies that have come out about loneliness and how people were struggling during and currently (laughs) at that time. I think, um, I think COVID did a few things. I think it shined a light on a problem that was already there. Right. Right. I think it's actually going to be the, and this, this has been written about in the New York times, it's going to be the tsunami effect after the pandemic kind of a particularly wave coming a little yeah, bit later right particularly for our younger generation you know mm-hmm. for kids who stayed home whose only social interacted interaction was through social media which is you know really a very terrifying place to be you can you can get chronically lonely very fast and depressed and all of those things social media can you know it it, it has negative effects particularly on the young brain right right um it also, what COVID-19 did is as we were selling this and we sell into insurance payers, it executives now had an understanding. It, it was more, it wasn't a problem anymore that they could be like, you know, I get it in theory, but I don't really understand it. Now everyone was coming to the table saying, wow, I just lived that. And I can only imagine, you know, how profound it might be for somebody who might have social determinants of health needs. Like that's the other thing that we find is that there's a big correlation between depression and loneliness and between loneliness and social determinants of health. Like, in other words, when people are chronically lonely, other things are going on. Mm-hmm. And that's why, that was another reason why we, 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 we have the humans because we have to help people if they need food, we have to help them if they need a ride to the doctor's appointment, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you've combined humans and technology. Yep. The tech enabled, uh, Tech enabled services is really kind of our category. I call that though the humans and the technology or the peanut butter and chocolate. You know, it, <laughs> you can't have one without the other. And 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 because we're treating a human condition, like a bot can only go so far. Right. And then I think again, you and I spoke about this, but I am curious for our listeners to hear your experience fundraising because yeah. although this wasn't your first company, right? This was the second. Yep. Right. So you must have had a little bit of experience under your belt, but what did that look like for you with picks? You mean raising money for the company? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Night and day, right? Like, so the problem with the first company is I think the most I'd ever made in in an entire year was like $70,000. So, and I didn't have access to capital. And so I would talk to any, so the first company was MRS, Medical Referral Source. I would talk to anyone about MRS. I'd be at a picnic. I'd talk about it. Birthday party, you know, I mean, anywhere. It got to the point where my family was like, you are not allowed to go into this family function and talk about MRS, you know, but 
I, I couldn't help it. I mean, I knew. And so what happened was I'm at one of those events and I'm telling somebody at a barbecue and they're like, you know, you should talk to my business partner. He's really steeped in healthcare. And these are people who are real estate syndicate guys. So all they did for a living was raise money. And I met that, that gentleman and I met him again and I met him again. And then he was in. And so he opened doors for me for money. And I know I hate when, when people make it sound like, oh, if you want to start a company, you can, and just don't take a paycheck and live in your parents' garage. Well, I was, you know, 37 years old. That wasn't a possibility. I had a kid, right? I couldn't live in somebody's garage. I needed a paycheck. Like there were, there were things. And so for me, it was just selling the passion. And that is exactly what I did in political fundraising. You are literally selling passion for a cause or a candidate. Um, and so that company did well and it did well quickly. So this time when I went out to raise money, it was not a problem. Hey everyone, it's Sam. I'm just stopping by to tell you about our new show, Portfolio Pitch. We sit down and talk to investors and get to know the person behind the investment. Go give it a listen on your favorite podcasting platform and let us know what you think by giving it a review. Coming up, Emily and Cindy chat about what it's like being a female founder fighting to combat loneliness and what she sees for the future of PICS. Can you speak to your experience as a female founder? Because we don't have that many so far on the podcast. Wow. Um, gosh, I would actually call it an advantage. All right. Um, There's a positive spin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I can tell you that I think that women in general are, you know, we operate more from influence than authority. I think, you know, and I'm, this isn't all women and I'm making generalizations and I don't want any of your listeners to get upset. But I mean, I actually think that when you're running a startup, there's phases and the first phase is family. And so there's a real advantage to being a female founder in that phase. Um, and there were, there are lots of things, particularly in what we're doing, because we're, we're doing something so mission driven where, you know, there, uh, uh, my chief operating officer is a woman. I mean, I, I just, I really do feel like there's some, there's some experiences that we have as women. And for me in particular, that I've experienced like, you know, discrimination or, you know, this, these ideas of what society thinks I should or shouldn't be. And those things have only, just like being a police officer and overcoming all that adversity have only made me a stronger leader, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I will tell you when I took institutional money, which I don't know if you and I had talked since I had done that, but I was very, very certain that I wouldn't take it unless there was a managing partner that was a woman. I think we had maybe just talked when, but you were able to find someone. Correct? We were. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the, the it, my institutional partners, the the managing. So there's four partners, and one of them is is a woman, and she is literally a unicorn. She ended up selling her company for one point nine billion dollars. Wow. You know, she did. She's. It was in tech. You know, it was at a time when no, there were no female founders, let alone those that were exiting at those kind of levels. And so um, it was a match made in heaven. I didn't need the money. In fact, the timing was probably not perfect, but I wanted them mm -hmm. and particularly her as a partner. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Love a good fit. 
not not easy to find. <laughs> no, but you you know, really, I I promise you, it's like I I manifested it. I was like, I want I I want a financial partner that is you know, and but and then next thing you know, maybe like six months later, we just got warmly introduced, and then that was that. There you go. See, manifesting. Yeah. That'll be our second takeaway of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to touch on a stat here that I have that PIX has helped lower loneliness by 37%. Is that correct? Yep. I'm curious on how you guys get to those results. And then what do you, is like, how do you qualify somebody not being, not suffering anymore? Is it that they don't need PIX anymore? Do they sign off? How does that work? How do you like um, manage that kind of success? Yeah, so probably the most widely available evidence-based screening around loneliness is the UCLA Loneliness Scale. Um, it's been around the longest. It's 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 accepted by pretty much everyone, and Im- improvement on that scale is hard to do. Um, and so that's what we use. We use a baseline UCLA, and then we Pixar through the platform intermittently takes these you know these screenings, and we do others too around anxiety and depression and. We obviously are scoring people on all kinds of things, but the, but the point is, is that the UCLA loneliness is our indicator for improvement. Um, and then how we do it is when we find somebody who scores high on the loneliness, that means that they're chronically lonely. That means that they're in that position. You and I talked about that fight or flight. And then that makes them eligible for not just using our platform or talking to our Andes. We put them into what's called our thrive program. And it's an eight-week program uh, based in positive psychology, overseen by a clinician, with the exact um, the goal is to get people out of that chronic state. Okay, got it. The word I was looking for was measure, not manage. I was like, manage isn't right; it's measure. <laughs> I understood. I understood. <laughs> We're on the same page. Um, I'm also curious: is there a particular risk? that you remember taking throughout this journey? And can you kind of tell our listeners about it and how that panned out for you? There are so many. Um, <laughs> gosh, I feel like, <clears throat> I feel like, you know, you, you pretty much take risk like every day. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, what was, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you the hardest thing I've done on this journey, and maybe that equates to risk, is that, um, and I know this hadn't happened, Emily, when we had talked, but Mm -hmm. the same daughter that I started the company for passed away this summer. And yeah, awful, right? But, you know, one of the last things that she said to any human in this world through a text message before she passed was that she was lonely. And so I think about, I think about that a lot. And, And to me, that is the it's this risk that we can't help families from, from stopping to go through what we've gone through. Like I think about when her journey started in 2017 and if there was a PIX, if somebody could have helped her before things just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Right. Um, And so for me, the risk is just like loss of time with family loss of, um, you know, I mean, my kid is turning 13 on Saturday and all he has ever known is me doing this, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, and I wonder sometimes, is he going to be proud? Is he going to be like, gosh, my mom was never around. Like, I don't know, you know? And so to me, those, th- there's, there's a lot of family risk in starting a business. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I can't speak for your son, but from where I'm sitting, I think what well, you're doing yeah, it, is wonderful. Actually, he could do this podcast. Uh, you know, it was a joke during uh, the pandemic. Uh, there was like three of us here at the office who came in even before vaccines. And we exposed, obviously, our pods to each other. And our kids went to school in one of the conference rooms and we hired a teacher. Oh, and so, yeah. And so everything... Fine. It was great. I mean, it was small, but it was important at that place or where we were. We were growing so like crazy. Mm -hmm. We needed to be with each other. So, of course, we're on Zooms all the time. And one day at lunch, because we would all just kind of sit and eat lunch together. You know, he just spilled off the sales pitch. <laughs> and See? I was like, well, there's some osmosis going on here. You they're know? always so, listening. Yeah. That's yeah, good to know cool. if you ever needed to take a sick day or maybe you just want to go on a vacation, put him up. You yeah, know? yeah. Have 13 year olds show up with some hospital executives. <laughs> um, no, so there's a lot of, there's, you know, some people take financial risk, which of course, actually, I don't even think you can start a business and not do that. But I do think there's a emotional, personal risk mm -hmm. that goes along with doing this and probably more so because we are women. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's really great. I also want to ask you about what do you envision for the future of PIX? Gosh, I think PIX, well, firstly, I do think there's going to be a uh, I think loneliness is going to be recognized as a chronic condition, which means that there will be billable codes around it. And then that just changes everything in the way that healthcare reacts because healthcare follows the money. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think PICS could be the prescriptive solution to loneliness. And, you know, it could be a huge company could go public. It won't be me that does that, but I mean, it, I, I think, I think we have figured something out that that I haven't seen another company do quite yet. And so as loneliness becomes more pervasive and more deadly and more, it, you know, more, I don't know, prominent, um, healthcare will start to pay attention to it. The money will flow there. And I think PICS could be could be the, you know, the preemptive solution. Mm -hmm. And right now, if somebody was interested in using PICS, how, how are people finding out about you? Is it through the health, their healthcare provider? Yeah, right now you, you essentially have to like, you know, we're still a B2B to C company. Um, I do think some, at some point in 2022, we are going to offer a consumer, um, like some, anyone could go to the app store and use it or buy it for someone else. Um, I don't know that we'll ever put forth money toward going direct to consumer. I just think it's getting to the point where we get a lot of the questions that you're asking. There needs to be a solution. Mm -hmm. However, um, if there is a free version and it doesn't come with the humans, um, but if you went to any the app store, or the Google Play, and you downloaded the app, um, and where it says health plan ID, you just skip it and it will it will put you in. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah. And but, then. Do you have a piece of advice for another? I think you kind of said one earlier, but if you have another one, another piece of advice for an entrepreneur who's maybe just getting started in their journey or maybe has been in their journey for a while and is just things aren't moving as quickly as they wished. Yeah, I mean, I think the advice is like, it's almost like I'm going to say one thing and then I'm going to say exactly the opposite. The first thing I'll say is like, really, everyone has an opinion and you don't have to, you don't have to listen to them, you know, mm -hmm. because 
for some reason, while while we're this country loves to build people up and we love a success story, like um, somebody explained this once to me, there's there's a bell curve, right? And most people are in in the center of the bell curve. And if you try to leave that bell curve to become extraordinary, to become an entrepreneur who builds something amazing, what happens? All the people in that bell curve are going to be critical of you. They're going to say, mm, don't go out there. You're going to fail. It's because there's comfort in numbers. Mm-hmm. And so when you're out there and you're thinking about a company, generally people are like, oh, that'll never work. Oh, who will use it? All that. And so I say, ignore all that. I also say, you know, listen, like, listen to your market. That's why build a minimal, minimal viable product, get it out there, test it. Don't build for you. Don't build for your own experience. You have to build for whomever the end user is mm-hmm. going to be. Um, so I'm telling you not to listen to the naysayers and I am telling you to listen to your customer. And I think that those are the two, if you can do that, I, I think you can basically do anything you want. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because that's, those are the common mistakes, right? Right. I think that's great advice. And then what would you tell somebody, I guess, kind of piggybacking off that advice? So let's say there are naysayers and they say, hey, you're crazy. That's a terrible idea or anything like that. Or when you hit a piece of rejection, it can be really hard, I imagine, to continue going. And I I feel like I kind of have an understanding of where you get your strength from. But what would you tell people who are struggling to keep going? Gosh, I guess you're... I mean, we were joking about manifesting, but like the power of the conviction in yourself has to be stronger than the, you know, and it's not ego that it it should not be confused with that. It should just be uh, an unwavering belief Mm -hmm. that that you can do it. Um, The power of the mind is is is, you know, sometimes I'll be like, gosh, what if? And then I'll stop myself before I even finish the sentence, because what if isn't going to happen? I already know that w- that that it, this is going to be a success and we are going to help people. I know that. And so it's a foregone conclusion. Now it's just a matter of getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would think, I, I wish there was something more concrete, like, oh, if you eat six eggs in the morning and drink <laughs> apple juice, you know, you'll succeed. But it isn't that. It really is a fortitude of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, when I went to start that first company, I mean, even my own family, you know, what, are you crazy? Like this will never work. How are you going to get it up and running? You've never run a tech company before. I mean, on and on and on. Yeah. Well, they see you now. So (laughs) (laughs) they're so Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I assume it would be very hard to go at this journey alone, though I know a lot of founders do. So I am curious, you are a co-founder. How many co-founders do you have? How did you guys connect? And kind of what's that been like? Yeah, so it's never really a popular uh, thing, but I started the uh, I started the company with my spouse and my last one, um, and so it is. It's we have rules like you don't talk about business after <laughs> seven at home. You know, this is this is um, great. This is actually I would say this is maybe I'm looking at Sam. I think this is maybe like our third or fourth founder who has done it with their spouse. So if that makes you f- f- feel any better, <laughs> yeah, I mean. We look, you know, we did one already and the first one was hard and we had to figure that out from our, but this one isn't. And, and we went into this one with our eyes wide open and, we and like did a this shared vision. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like now yeah. it's a totally, di- plus, you know, we're, we're older and we've, we've lived through it and we understand, but 
one of us had to be the boss, right? And there's, and if you know the two of us, you know, there's, there's no question that, that I'm the boss, you know? And so, <laughs> and so you have to figure out how not to do that in your personal life, right? That, that's okay. Not at to work, carry that over. Yeah. It does not, that does not work at home. And I don't, I don't even want that to work at home. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the beautiful side of it is, is that like, if I'm an investor there, there are never like, we're in this full on, right? Like our family, everybody is, is committed to this. And, and secondly, there's, we're not going to fight over money, which is happens to a lot of co-founders. Yep. Right. And yeah. so there's, there's some real beauty to it as, as well. Um, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I can't even imagine doing this without her. And, and, and I'm, and I'm sure she would tell you the same. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I think that's great. Like I said, just that shared vision when you both experienced the same thing, which prompted Pick. So was she as on board when you first started? Like, so you had the initial vision for Picks, and you're like, okay, I want to do this. Did they have the same spark or did you kind of have to convince and say, OK, here's my idea. I want to do this. Are you on board? No, I mean, Anne, her name's Anne. Anne was, I think, for this one, because it really centered around Riley, our our daughter. Mm -hmm. There was no. No, there was had, no you have to convince or yeah. anything like that. In the first one, there was lots of convincing. She was she was one of those people. She's like, are you crazy? I'm like, listen, let's let's drain our savings and she's like, absolutely. Not. You know what I mean? Like, we're not doing that. Like, you know, so in the first one, I feel like I was willing to go full on risk and she was really hesitant. Mm -hmm. But in this one, it was really different. It almost didn't even matter about the financial success of this company. That was not that that that's not what we were thinking of in those early days. No, when we were you're just it. trying yeah. to create a solution. Yeah. yeah. So she's this one was really easy and, and has, and has, I mean, when I think about it now, you know, we're, you know, th this is the legacy that, that we want to leave Riley. Mm -hmm. And so it really, it really changes everything for, I can't imagine one of the two of us not doing this. Right. Well, that's so wonderful. Well, yeah. I'll let you, I have one more question for you and then I'm going to yeah. let you say anything else that you want to say. <laughs> But what is your personal definition of success for you personally? Well, there's there's two. One would obviously be that we can touch as many people that need help that feel lonely or isolated, period, mm -hmm. full stop, right? And I don't, I mean, I know that it's a grandiose vision, but anywhere in the world. The second, and I don't think women do this enough, but, you know, I would like this to be a financial success for me, for my family, for the wonderful people who came to work here when we only had two months of running room, you know, I mean, now it's easy to go out and find talent, right? right. We're, we were de-risked, you know, we've got, we've got funding, et cetera. But right. back then there were some wonderful people who had brilliant careers that took, that took a flyer on this. And mm -hmm. so, so I want both of those things. I really want to help people and I want there to be uh, I want picks to be a financial success. As, of course, especially when circling back to what you said earlier about, you know, the the family element with yeah. your son and, and everything like that. You know, you've spent a lot of time away. It would yep. only make sense that you would want this to be successful. I don't think that's a bad thing to say or want. Yeah, it's funny. He He teases me quite a bit because... We, there's some things I say all the time, like the long story longer. And I always say, when I sell the company, 
And then I talk about the things I want to buy. <laughs> so, uh, I'm like, sure he's hoping he's just going to get a cut of that at some point. <laughs> yeah, he, he actually gets a real kick out of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, no, it's true. People, uh, there are many people here, not just me and Annie, that made uh, that make and have made significant family sacrifices mm-hmm. to get us to where we are. And they deserve they deserve that freedom that comes along with like a great financial win course. Well, yeah, I just want to open it up if you want to say anything else to our listeners, or maybe if somebody is feeling lonely, something you'd like to say to them. Gosh, I think if someone's feeling lonely, like, you know, get on the platform. Um, I, as far as your listeners go, I, I don't feel like I probably have more wisdom than any of them. I just, uh, if, Actually, if there's anyone listening that would like to reach out, I'm on LinkedIn, send me a direct message. I'm happy to share any of my shit. I call it the entrepreneur's code, right? Like I wouldn't be here if people hadn't been so gracious and helped me get to here. So I I love to give back that way. So I would say to your listeners, if anyone's listening and there's some way I can help, feel free to reach out directly. Oh, thank you, Cindy. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. It is always heartwarming and I feel emotional, but we're going to move past it. And (laughs) thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. And just thanks again. Thanks, Emily. To learn more about today's guest, please visit startupblogpost.com. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.